Uh, as I begin this morning, I just want to express some appreciation. Uh, and what I'm talking about is appreciation for the, the theological education and training that I was very privileged to have part of. You know, I sat under the teaching of some very well-known people in Christendom uh, over many, many years. And I, I really hope that, that myself and you have both benefited from that. Uh, I don't want to mention all the names, but you might be surprised by some of them. Uh, but the thing I want to talk about this morning, I don't know who it was that, that gave Lori and I that biography on R.C. Sproul, but I just finished it last week, and I really enjoyed it. So whoever you happen to be, we're very much appreciative of it. But one of the things I had not even thought about in a long time, and I did sit on I had Sproul for systematic theology and for a study of the Westminster Confession, and not only that, I've had the opportunity, had the opportunity of interaction with him through Presbytery and that sort of thing on a, a pretty regular basis. But I had forgotten this. He used to tell, he told us this in class. I don't know how many times I'd completely forgotten about it. But when he entered into the ministry, he developed a habit. And the habit was he always had sitting on his desk a note that he wrote to himself to remind him of something that was very, very important. And this, what it simply said was this. You are required to believe, to preach, to teach what the Bible says is true, not what you want the Bible to say is true. And that is something that we all need to take heart of. Because we know this. We look out on Christendom today and we understand that there's all kinds of divisions because different people have different understandings of the particular aspects of what being a Christian and what being part of, a part of the Church of Jesus Christ actually is. But I just want to remind us all that this is, what the, this is how we all should approach Scripture. To take it for what it says, not read into it things it does not say because they make it sound a little bit more comfortable for us. We need to take God at his word. Now, I say that because what we're going to be talking about is somewhat controversial as far as the church in general goes now, and it has been for quite a while. J.C. Ryle writes about this particular part of this passage that we're going to read this morning. He says this. He says, the conversation between Christ and Nicodemus is one of the most important passages in the whole of Scripture. So I just want to remind us what we're talking about this morning is something that's very, very important. It's not a peripheral thing. Some people would make this to be one of those very much a peripheral uh, topic or subject. Uh, but I want us to walk away from here this morning understanding that this is one of the most central teachings of Scripture in regard to the process of salvation. It's not something that's peripheral. It's not something that we have a, a lots of different understandings of what is meant here because the scripture itself is very, very clear. So 
So with that said, we're going to read from the Gospel according to John, from chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe it if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, and as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, would you agree with J.C. Ryle's assessment? Do you think that's one of the most important passages in all of Scripture for New Testament believers? One of the things that I just want to really emphasize this morning is this, is, is this idea of being born again is an activity an action of God. We do not make ourselves be born again. If anyone is born again by the Spirit, God is the author of it. God is the one who has to do it. Can you imagine being Nicodemus? Because we, we see here that he came at night, which tells us something, and that is he didn't want people to know that he was going to Jesus. He didn't want to see his buddies in the Sanhedrin, the rest of the Pharisees, to see that he was going to talk to this Jesus in private. So he did it under the cover of darkness. The crazy thing about it, as much as he didn't want it to become public, it became very, very public. <laughs> It's written down here in the Bible, right? So people have been studying this particular passage for the last 2,000 years. You're going, I know about it. And Nicodemus initially didn't want anybody to know about it. Some important things is we need to understand here that Nicodemus, who was he? He was a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a well-respected teacher and theologian of Israel. Highly regarded. He's mentioned a number of times in the Gospels. Here, 
The, one of the other times he's mentioned is what we talked about last Sunday or the last Thursday, or a, a week ago Thursday when we had the Monday Thursday service. And Nicodemus, remember, was with Joseph of Arimathea. They were the ones who took the body of Jesus and laid it in the tomb. So in the life of Nicodemus, we see the things play out that Jesus enlightened him to when he had this nighttime conversation with him. Notice that Nicodemus addresses Jesus as rabbi. Title wasn't given to just anybody and everybody. Granted to those who were recognized as being teachers of great authority. That word can also be translated as master. Someone who was highly regarded, someone who was looked upon with great regard. But one of the things that becomes very clear in the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus is this, is Nicodemus might have known a lot about many things, but he really didn't know himself. He didn't know the true Nicodemus. He did not understand the true nature and degree of his own sin. Because he believed that by his own perceived good works, he could take care of business. He didn't realize that every thought and action that went forth from him was tainted with sin. That even the best of his good works at least to some degree, brought displeasure from God. He didn't realize the fact that all of those animals that had been sacrificed to atone for his sins didn't actually atone for any of them. In essence, I would imagine when he left that, that, that evening, he left with a sense that even though he was so highly regarded and thought so well of and respected, that of himself he stood condemned before God. Jesus enlightens him to a very important truth about salvation. First of all, he says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is confused at this point. You know, is he saying that I have to crawl back into my mother so I can be born all over again? And Jesus makes it very clear that he's not talking about a physical birth. He's talking about a spiritual birth. But Nicodemus is confused. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is even more confused. Because you need to understand that this was new teaching falling upon his ears. Are, is, there, is there some reason from the Old Testament that we could glean this kind of stuff? And there actually is. There are Old Testament passages that teach this. But they certainly were not the ones that were emphasized by first century Pharisees. 
It was all legalism all over again. There are times when the church itself has misrepresented what Jesus is teaching in this particular passage. As a matter of fact, it has happened a lot. In the 1970s, it became popular for people to refer to themselves as born-again Christians. Chuck Colson and Jimmy Carter really kind of bolstered that idea. And, and the thought there was this, and that was that I, when I was younger, I was one of those church kids. Or maybe a little bit even later in my life. I had, I had, I had been a church person. I had attended church. But then there came a time in my life when I, I fell away from it. But then later on, when these guys got in trouble... They went back to their roots. Let me be clear. This is not at all what Jesus is talking about here, period. That is a total, absolute misrepresentation of what it means to be born again. Being born again means this, that God gives you birth when you were otherwise dead. Period. Not physically. But spiritually, very often even church people believe that there's enough goodness in us that God shows us favor because of that goodness. Let me tell you, that, that does not appear in Scripture anywhere. When the Bible talks about our sin, it says that we are dead. We are dead in our trespasses. That we have not any ability at all. To save ourselves. Which, which demands what? That if we're to be saved, God's got to do the saving. Period. And without that, we have no hope at all. None. What I'm telling you is every Christian, everyone who is a true believer in Jesus Christ is a born-again Christian. Every one of us. And like we said before, that this is, is, is an area, there's a lot of disagreement within the church. Some people say that being born again is strictly an act of God, which is where I fall. Why? Because I think it's pretty clear in the Scriptures. Jesus says here that the Spirit goes where the Spirit wills, not where someone else calls the Spirit to come. There are those who believe that God does some and then we do some. And then there are those who believe that it's completely, totally, absolutely up to each person. 
But I want to remind us this morning that whenever we're sharing the gospel with someone who hasn't come to faith, we're talking to someone who is dead in their trespasses. Dead. Not just a little sick, not just a little ill, not just a little off kilter, not just a little off course. They are dead as a doornail in their sins. And somehow we believe that people still have the ability to raise themselves up beyond that point. Would we ever think for a minute, other than the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that a dead person had, has the ability to breathe life into themselves? No. That's crazy. Again, Jesus makes it clear that this is an act of God. The Spirit goes where the Spirit wills. In other words, God saves people. People in no way, shape, or form save themselves. Now, we have to respond. Don't get me wrong. The only reason anyone ever says yes is because God has sent forth His Spirit who has already begun the rebirth in that person, without which no one would ever come to faith in Jesus Christ. Some people, and I've heard this before, that, you know, if you believe what you're saying here, that you're a really arrogant person. That would be true if I couldn't back up what I'm saying from the Bible. And sometimes people with this understanding that we have here, we're reformed. And this is one of the biggest aspects of what it means to be reformed. And that is to understand that God saves people. We don't save ourselves. We lack the ability, absolutely lack the ability to do that. And you'll hear people make the charge, well, that's very arrogant for you to believe such a thing, that God brings salvation to you and he doesn't bring it to other people. That's kind of arrogant on your part to believe that, isn't it? But we have to give credence to everything the Bible teaches. And one of the things, like we said before, is this, is that we're dead in our trespasses. We are spiritually dead people. And we understand that dead people cannot breathe life into themselves. We also know this, that God doesn't, bring, doesn't send forth this Holy Spirit to everybody. Now, one of the charges that is leveled again, like I said before, against people that, with this perspective that we have, is that it makes people prideful and arrogant. And let me tell you what, if you believe it and it's made you prideful and arrogant, you don't understand it. Because you begin to think that he saved me because I'm worthy to be saved. Because there's something in me that he doesn't see in other people. If that's what you think, then you're dead wrong. Matter of fact, very often God draws the people that people least expect will come to him to himself. And I am a very good example of that. And I would imagine there are people up sitting out here today would tell me exactly the same thing. I see smiles out there. You, you've experienced the same thing that I did. 
And let me tell you, I was a church kid. I was baptized when I was like 12 years old and this, that, and the other. And then my family, we just stopped going to church and didn't go for years and years and years and years. I didn't darken the door of a church for probably for 30 years of my life. Well, maybe not quite that many. I stand here today because of what God has done for me, not because of what I have done. He's the one that brought me here. He's the one that's done everything. And when I look at myself, I wonder why. Why me? When we understand these things, it should not ever make anybody arrogant. What it ought to do is just humble the mess out of you. That for God's own reasons, he has chosen to love you, the unlovable, that much. You understand why J.C. Ryle thinks this is one of the most important passages of Scripture? Again, though, it's one of the most divisive passages in all of Scripture. There are people who absolutely abhor and hate this doctrine. I've heard of people who believe that it's come from Satan himself. I would be very, very careful of ascribing something to Satan that very clearly is something that comes from God. Now, let me just say this morning, if you look at yourself and think, boy, he sure got a good deal with me. What a prize he got in me. Or you somehow think for one minute that you deserve what you've received in any way, shape, or form. Then let me ask you, who do you think is the prideful one? I mean, when people look upon Reformed Christians like we are, they should find the humblest people around. Because it should be one of the greatest mysteries for each one of us when we ask the question, why me? Why me? Why did you love me that much? Why have you sent your son into the world to save me? And if I was the only one you saved, he still would have come to do it. See, this is how important we are to him. I know some of you sit out there this morning, you wonder if you've ever really been loved by people. And some of you probably have good reason for asking that question. Because you haven't received all that much love from people. But if you believe, you believe because God has sent forth his spirit to your dead heart and soul. 
and breathe life spiritually into you. Because he has known you since the very beginning of time. Jesus came specifically to save you. Among other people, not just you by yourself. In other words, what I'm saying is he came on a mission, a specific mission, a very well-specified and defined mission. And Kathy Gruber was part of that. And Ken Habedank was part of that. And Donna Morris was part of that. I mean, this is a lesson for all of us, and that is this, is we cannot impose upon this, the Word of God human manners of thought and understanding. I mean, here you have this Pharisee, was one of, he, you know, obviously was one of the greatest authorities in the Bible in his day. And completely blind to this, te- this teaching. It's not just New Testament teaching. It's also Old Testament teaching. What do you know about Abraham? Comes on the scene. Was he really that impressive to you? Was he also always faithful in doing what God told him to do? Etc, etc, etc. Did Abraham deserve God's good pleasure? What about Isaac? What about Jacob? What about the Apostle Paul? See, Jesus is amazed that he's a teacher. And he doesn't understand this very, 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 very basic thing. I'm not going to mention their name, but uh, you know, very often when we talk about these things, we connect with reform. And very often when you think about reform, you think about Martin Luther and John Calvin uh, and people like that. And, and I've heard, I've heard of evangelists saying th- things like, uh, like there are countless souls that have been confined to hell because of the teaching of John Calvin. That sort of thing. We need to be careful coming from the other end of the spectrum that we don't look like that arrogant and proud and puffed up thinking we are the one who knows it all and if anybody needs to know the truth you just come to me and I will set you straight. I want us to remember something and that is if you go by the name of Protestant today your roots are in the Protestant Reformation where this, the, the emphasis on this theology, the theology of God as being Savior, 
absolutely and completely was the heart and soul of what about, brought about Protestantism. But I'm telling you, in the beginning of the New Testament church, during the days of the Reformation, every Christian believed what we are talking about this morning. But we live in a church today where people are all over the board. We need to get back to the Word of God, and we need to let the Word of God speak for itself. When we were in Uganda, there was an evangelist missionary that was there we spent a good deal of time with. And he, would, he played the guitar, very gifted, like Shelby. She always amazes me because, have you ever had any formal training? No, no formal training at all. She can, you can ask her to play anything. She hears it one time and here it comes. How she does that, I don't know. But anyway, he was also a musician and he, uh, he would take his guitar with him and he would go out on these little walks in the countryside and Whenever he'd see a few people, he, you know, hanging around a house or something like that, he'd sit down in the road and get out his guitar and start playing it and, and singing songs. And the next thing you know, there'd be a little crowd gathering around, and he would give them a gospel presentation. And what he did was this, is he would take his guitar case, and he would lay it beside the road. And he said, I want you to think about this guitar case as if it's a dead body. Someone has died, and they're laying here on the side of the road. And I want to ask you a simple question. And the question is this, is can that body, that dead body, breathe life back into itself? Can that dead body make itself alive? And we know what the obvious answer to that question is, and that's no way, Jose. Dead bodies that are dead are dead. They have not the ability, desire, they don't have anything that would bring them back into life. But you understand that that is how the Bible describes our spirit apart from Christ. We are dead to the things of God. So logic demands that if we are to be saved, the power of that has to come from without. God's power working in us. Let me just say this to you. This is something I think about and reflect about all the time. And if you don't do that, there comes a time when you start to wonder and question And this is not something that should be on our mind on a rare occasion. Something we could, should contemplate continually. And let me tell you, if we do, our life is going to look a whole lot different than it will otherwise. Seriously. 
whenever you look upon the cross, whenever you think about Christ, one of the things that should be foremost in your mind is this, is God loves me that much. That much. He has saved me. I have not saved myself. Very appropriate. This morning as we serve the Lord's Supper, we do this Every second Sunday of every month. We did it on Monday, Thursday, just a couple of weeks ago. And we anticipated not doing it. But someone said to me the other day, what about the people who are not here for the Monday, Thursday service? That means they have to go for a whole month. I said, we can't do that to our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have to do it. We want to do it.